If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. One of the hardest things, I think, for many of us as we go through life is to take criticism. Most of us say that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But when push comes to shove, the reality is very different. The reality is all of us have been confronted a time or two, or hundreds, or thousands. We've all been confronted in life over things that we've done wrong, whether it's against the teachings of Scripture, whether it's disobeying a parent, whether it's disobeying someone in authority over us, whatever the case may be, we've all been confronted. But what happens when we are accused of something that we didn't commit? What should we do? How should we respond? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at three things here in Acts chapter 23 in order to answer that question. Number one, we're going to look at the pot stirred in chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 10. Number two, the plot revealed, chapter 23, verses 11 through 22. And number three, the informed delivered, chapter 23, verses 23 through 35. Let's start with number one, the pot stirred. Chapter 22, verse 30, into chapter 23. So the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, look, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks." So as we were discussing last week, the commander has just realized that they are about to punish a Roman citizen. And in 
absolute terror over the situation, he brings Paul out to the Jewish community, particularly the Jewish rulers. Paul's released by the commander and delivered right to them, the chief priests and the council. He's brought before the Sadducees and Pharisees, and they're given authority to decide what to do with him. Ultimately, what the commander wanted to do is what Pilate did with Jesus. I don't really want to be guilty of anything here, so I'm going to let others decide. Now, with everything going as well as it did, in, in Paul's case, right, he had just been spared of a scourging. The commander delivers him to the Jewish rulers. You'd think things would go better, and in fact, it gets much worse. Paul starts off by identifying himself with them as a Jew and letting them know that he's lived with a good, clear conscience before God. His defense is ultimately to state that he has done nothing wrong. Mind you, this defense was met with a quick, swift response with a strike to the mouth by Ananias. Well, Ananias actually had somebody else do it for him. Let's put it that way. It's possible that Ananias, who's more than likely a Sadducee, found Paul guilty before the trial even started. He already had his preconceived notions. He already determined Paul was going to be found guilty as charged. Ananias, according to Josephus, who's a famous Jewish historian, was known as a power-hungry high priest who got angry very easily, was very greedy, and eventually was actually killed by the Jews who couldn't stand him years later after this encounter with Paul. Now, Paul doesn't respond as many of us would probably expect him to respond after this happens and him being struck in the mouth. Paul calls him out as a whitewashed wall. Very similar to how Jesus called out the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. Ultimately, Paul is calling him out for his hypocrisy, going against what the law had stated, which is, you can't determine me guilty until you've gone through this whole thing. You were declared innocent first. In fact, Paul is just simply applying WWJD. What would Jesus do? Paul is calling out the injustice and slapping him before he's found to be guilty as the Jewish law declared a person innocent until they were found guilty. What may seem to be an extreme reaction by Paul was simply Paul calling out injustice. It's important to pay attention to how Paul responds to someone that doesn't know better, as we mentioned last week, the Roman commander. Right? The Roman commander had no idea that Paul was a Jewish man that was also a Roman citizen. He didn't know what was really going on, and he was about to question him before realizing, wait, Paul's a Roman citizen, I can't go through with this. That would be breaking the law. These men knew the law. They came from the same background that Paul did. They knew better. And that's why there's a huge difference between the way Paul deals with the commander and the way he deals with these religious leaders. They knew that it was inappropriate to strike someone before they were charged, yet they still did that. Now, a point of application missed by many 
Church, you and I should be gracious to those that don't know any better. There are many people around us that don't know any better when it comes to the Word of God. We ought to be gracious to them. We need to understand that they don't understand Scripture. So we need to guide them as best as we can gently. With compassion. Remember Jesus' words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when it comes to those that know better, it's appropriate to use more stern language. Such as the Pharisees during Jesus' time and this high priest before Paul. Abusing the very law they subscribe to. Those that know better come in many different forms, church. They've been brought up in the church and now flaunt their Christian liberty in others' faces. Violating a brother's conscience should be called out for that. Those that are self-righteous, holier-than-thou Christians should also be called out for that. Those who think that they somehow live more upright lives than the rest and falsely claim that others are in sin because they aren't meeting their standard outside the Word of God. Those are to be called out. They were called out throughout the New Testament. In fact, there are certain people where they divide the church so much that you have to absolutely avoid them. That's what Scripture says. Paul is criticized for his response as he somehow insulted the high priest. Now what's interesting is they come at it with almost a, Paul, how dare you? How dare you go against the high priest here? Don't you know who he is? Show some respect, Paul. Most Christians would respond with the famous text, hey, listen, Paul, don't you know Scripture says to turn the other cheek? That's most of Christianity today, by the way, in America. Just turn the other cheek. Why would you even respond here, Paul? But is that what Jesus was implying when he said that? As we've mentioned before, that's not at all what Jesus meant, if you understand the Jewish, com the Jewish culture. In fact, one commentator points this out. I'm just going to read this verbatim. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. Did Jesus mean that we should allow others to bully us? No. In the culture of Jesus' day and in many Eastern cultures, even today, the right hand is considered clean and is used for clean activities such as eating. The left hand is used for other things and is considered unclean. When a person struck someone, it was done with the back of their hand. In this case, Jesus is very specific. The person who is struck is hit on their right cheek. This means that the bully used the back of the right hand to strike. This would be the common method of striking someone using the clean hand. By telling his audience to turn the other cheek, Jesus was not telling his listeners to be passive. Jesus was telling them not to retaliate by returning violence for violence. 
Instead, stand your ground and challenge the bully by turning your head and inviting them to strike you on the left cheek, forcing them to use the back of their unclean hand. This would have been an inappropriate use of their left hand according to their culture and would create a dilemma for the bully. So you see, Jesus is not telling his listeners and us to just acquiesce to injustice, church. That's not at all what's being implied there. Jesus was encouraging us to refuse to cooperate with violence in return and to challenge the injustice by creating, ultimately, a creative response. And that's what Paul actually does here. Paul here will have a creative response very soon. But he starts off by admitting he doesn't really know who he was speaking to. Now, there are many commentators that are all over the place on this, saying maybe Paul was being sarcastic here. But I'm just going to take Paul at his word and, and realize that what he's saying is what he means. He didn't really understand or recognize who this high priest was. It's very possible that they had thrown this together quickly. Maybe it wasn't as apparent and evident to Paul. Another commentator says that it's more than likely the fact that Paul may not have good vision. So it may not have been clear to him that this was the high priest. Paul knows to be respectful. And ultimately, his, his response is, I didn't know. See, if I had known this was the high priest I was speaking to, I would have not responded this way. Paul could have been also away for quite some time and not known that Ananias was the high priest during that time. It's very possible. But Paul realizes something throughout this back and forth that he sees going on. That there are two religious groups that are there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Two groups that disagree with each other a lot, and they'd always have open debates with one another. More than likely, also realized that this was probably not going to be a fair trial for him. This is probably not going to go well. So in a very well thought out fashion, Paul takes the position of the resurrection, which he did hold to, by the way, because he preached Jesus, crucified, buried, and resurrected. He takes that position on resurrection and states that his being a Pharisee and standing for the resurrection was the reason he was being judged. So Paul is very clever in how he words this. A lot of us could learn from the Apostle Paul and understand the beauty of nuance. This put the two groups at odds with one another as that was their ultimate dispute all along. The Sadducees didn't hold to a resurrection of the dead while the Pharisees did. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundational truth that Paul preached. So he was absolutely right in making that statement. His, his declaration in Corinthians, if Jesus is not resurrected, I'm wasting my time. What are we even preaching for? But Paul here reemphasizes it to play the two groups off each other. It causes the Pharisees to side with Paul by default him being a Pharisee, while pushing the Sadducees to counter. 
Essentially, the Pharisees began, began accusing the Sadducees of going after Paul for his being a Pharisee regarding the resurrection. Pharisees declared Paul innocent right then and there. He's one of ours. Stop accusing him. You have no right. Now, there's a lot of practical advice here that we can unpack. Church, we can find common ground with others who may not agree with us completely. And use that to our advantage against those in opposition. Being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There are a lot of Christians that don't understand the things that Paul did and how he worded things and how he thought through certain arguments because they tend to think I should just be dogmatic, throw something out there without, without, making, without worrying at all of how it comes across. Just speak the truth. Whoever, whoever listens to it, they'll listen to it. If they don't want to listen, they won't have to listen. But Paul had nuance in the way that he spoke. He thought through arguments. Listen, church, not every person will agree with every stance we take as Christians. But if we can find things in common with our fellow citizens, that we can fight back when there's overreach of the government, even in this nation. Unfortunately, most of us are not even realizing how easily we ourselves have been played. If you simply looked at how many, and I hate bringing this up, but it's so apropos to what's going on in this text. You simply looked at how many were against the vaccine and would never take it when Trump was president, that are fully for it now, would want to force everyone to take it now. I mean, it's amazing and incredible how easily society is played. It really is. It's absolutely stunning. You have family and friends who don't realize the media and the government have played them against one another. They're too blind to figure it out. Too blind to figure it out. They don't realize that they've been played. You really think these people don't know what they're doing? What's happened to us? We used to be able to respectfully disagree with others. What's happened? Politicians, instead of grandstanding, would take it out privately in a duel when our nation was first formed. They didn't pontificate to the media. We won't spend time with one another because doctor on TV said we shouldn't. We don't have time for them for the holidays. Listen, church, for a world where a lot of people have been dying, you'd think the one thing we would have realized is spending time with people. It's disgusting what this country's come to. We've been played. 
It's absolutely disheartening to see Christians get on their high horse and look down at others thinking God cares about their vaccine stance more than spending time in his word. If a lot of Christians got off social media and got into their Bibles, we'd have a much better testimony to the world. Shame on us for judging others in their walk with God while entirely neglecting our own. So many, so many people care about how others are loving their neighbor, they don't care how they don't love their neighbor. Self-righteous hypocrites we've all become. Passing judgment on everyone else. We've been played, church. We've been played by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're busy trying to fix everyone else. We're no different than the Pharisees and Sadducees arguing over Paul and not knowing exactly what they're really fighting over. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is essentially what happens here. That's what becomes the Pharisees' argument in defending their fellow Pharisee, Paul. Who, by the way... Converted Christianity, the very faith the Pharisees were opposed to, and killing their Messiah. How ironic is that? The very group that put Jesus on the cross are now defending one of his apostles. This tension between the two groups kept growing to the point of the commander having to pull Paul out of there for his safety. There's still more to be uncovered. Number two, the plot revealed. Verses 11 through 22. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make, it, make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. 
And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. God himself, after this encounter with the Pharisees and Sadducees, encourages Paul. He encourages him in that it was right for him to go to Jerusalem because God still has a mission for him in Rome. There's a group of 40 men, though, that conspired to kill Paul by placing themselves under a curse. That if they do not do God's bidding, if you will, in killing the Apostle Paul, they won't eat or drink until that happens. That is some determination. Now, more than likely, they were released of their oath because the, the plot fell apart. Their goal was to have Paul brought to the Jewish leaders and on the way over to take him out. Now, Paul's nephew, who seems to be a young man, hears about the plot and goes to the jail where Paul is at. And he lets Paul know about this. By the way, church, this is all God's providence at hand. God knows exactly what's going on, who's planning what, and he makes sure the right people over here. This reaches the commander who actually responds by doing what he can to deliver Paul safely. Listen, church, God sends people in our lives to warn us at exactly the right time. At exactly the right time. He's never too late. The question is, are we listening? Do we pay attention? Sometimes God uses the most unlikely people in our lives. In this case, it's more a little younger man or a boy that helps spare Paul's life. Paul was just encouraged by the Lord in his ministry, he would have never seen this coming. I have just been encouraged by God himself. I'm safe. Oh, by the way, Paul, there are 40 people ready to kill you right now. You think a few would be rough. 40 dedicated men that want to annihilate Paul. So many of us go about the Christian life thinking everything's just fine. And God sends people into our lives who come and encourage us. And they warn us of danger that's coming. Unfortunately, so many of us, we ignore it all too often. So many of that walk with God for some time would never take advice from a younger person because it's beneath them. Parents, I don't know if you've ever learned the hard lesson of your children sometimes being God's tool in your life. But I promise you, mine have taught me quite a few lessons. And sometimes when I don't want to admit that my children now are more God-minded than I am, I have to step back and repent especially when I have a very busy day, got a lot going on, was in the school late, working on some things here, get home, 
putting the kids to bed. Dad, are we going to read? Yes, we're going to read. It's a reminder from your children of the importance of the Word of God. You see, parents, God will use your children as a warning to you. Pay attention. Church, God will use other members as a warning to you. Pay attention. Paul had the encouragement of the Lord, but he also needed to heed the warning of his nephew in order to be safe. Number three, the informed delivered. Verses 23 through 35. And he called for two centurions. This would be the commander. Saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And, I want, and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning the questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I hear you when your accusers also, I will hear you, also, you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. You see, the commander here calls 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, under the cover of night to safely deliver Paul to Felix, the governor of Judea. The commander understood that they would stop at nothing to kill Paul. So he went above and beyond to protect Paul as a Roman citizen. The same commander that almost beat Paul himself. Until he realized, wait a second, he's a Roman citizen. I can't do this legally. It's wrong. I can't subject him to scourging. It seems that the commander had in some way grown fond of Paul, but knew that there was only so much that he could do. So he had to deliver Paul safely as soon as possible to Felix. The commander in his letter to the governor, Felix, recaps what he knows about Paul. Kind of goes through the history, if you will. 
and his troubles as a Roman citizen. By the way, even taking credit for rescuing him, leaving out the details of the fact that I almost beat him myself. The commander didn't mention that he almost flogged him illegally. That part was left out conveniently. He mentioned that Paul wasn't convicted of anything deserving of death. And unfortunately, I can't bring him back to the Jewish leadership because he will be killed on the way. So the best place for a fair trial would be before you, Felix. Now, Felix receives this letter and agrees to take Paul's case when he realizes where Paul is actually from. And he waits for the others to arrive to argue against Paul. Paul himself was kept in the governor's palace, which was a very safe place to be and probably a lot more relaxed than where he was earlier. Now, what's interesting about Felix, and, and when you read Scripture, it's always good to go do some digging as to the background of these people that you see in Scripture mentioned. Felix himself was originally a slave who had become a governor. And he was actually normally very harsh and cruel to the Jewish revolutionaries. One commentator mentions that he even assassinated a high priest during his reign. So his view of Jewish leaders is not the same as others might have. His job essentially as he understood it with the letter received was to defend Paul as a Roman citizen against the Jewish rulers, who, by the way, already had a bad reputation with him as well. Listen, church, this is what's amazing of how this story unfolds. God will protect his children, and he will use whatever means necessary to do so. Unlikely sources will be what God uses many times. Be certain that God will deliver his people through means one may not even expect. God had, God had given Paul the protection he needed that he didn't expect. In fact, Paul had no common interest with Felix, but they were both Roman citizens. But that didn't stop Felix from providing cover for him during this trial. This is one thing I think probably puzzles a lot of Christians. Don't assume that all of those that are outside the faith will not have your back at certain times. Sometimes we have this like isolationist, like it's us against the world. And you need to realize that God works in very mysterious ways sometimes. And he uses people that you would never expect to have your back. Don't assume, believer, that God can't work in the lives of unbelievers to provide help in the time of need for his people. God has moved in the hearts of pagans to be a blessing for his people Israel, and he will continue to take care of his own with whatever means he needs to use. Listen, church, it's important that we maintain a consistent gospel witness to those around us. There are people in your life that you know view your faith differently based on their relationship with you. And they don't 
view all Christians the way they view you. Because they've gotten to know you. They'd have your back in a hardship. And unfortunately, some Christians isolate so much that they don't build any relationships with anybody outside the faith. And that's not wise. That's not using Scripture properly. You are to be in the world, not of it. But you are to be in the world. People should know that we're Christians by what they see and hear from us. Our habits should show them that Christ matters, that God's word matters, that prayer matters, that church matters, that discipleship matters. All of those things should resonate with those around us. So in conclusion, here's my question for all of us. Are you daring enough? Are you daring enough? You see, so many times throughout history, the church has been misrepresented and misunderstood. But that never really mattered because the church understood what they were here for. And that was to make Christ known to the nations. Jesus is king. It's settled. We're here to make a difference because of the gospel. We're to be a light in our community but are we bold enough to share that with them? You can't be a light if you're hiding it. Let me put it this way. It's going to have no benefit. Let's put it that way. If you're hiding your light, it doesn't help anybody. Might as well assume it doesn't exist if you can't see it. Do people know that Christ means so much to us that he matters more than anything that we have in this life? Do people know that as we're raising our children, parents, that Jesus is the reason we're doing it? Do people know that the job we're working is really for greater things than just making a little more money? Do people know that why we have certain things that we do every single week faithfully, it's because we love Christ? And it might look crazy and weird to the world, but they know that that's genuine and that's who we are. They also know that when we mess up, we're going to be the first ones to own it and stop being self-righteous and pretend that everybody else is at fault. Do others find us emboldened enough to stand against hypocrisy in our own lives? As much as we speak out about hypocrisy in others' lives. You see, Paul had every right to say what he said. Because Paul is a consistent man. Some of us need to work on ourselves before we go accusing others of hypocrisy. Before you want to go tell everybody else about how their standard doesn't match up to the Word of God, make sure you're matching up to the Word of God. Are we simply willing to own it when we've made a mistake or we've been mistaken about something? Listen, we may not understand things clearly sometimes, and we need to be able to recognize that. You may not even know what I'm even talking about as a pastor right now. 
To you, this whole thing is foreign. You might be watching online and going, I don't even know what he's dealing with here. Well, let me start off by saying this. I want to encourage you to trust Christ. What do I mean by that? Jesus came to this earth. God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sin. Every single one of us is a sinner. There's no exceptions to that. And he simply asked that we would come to him in faith, believing, trusting, which will then be exemplified later on in obeying what he's commanded. That means that we believe that Jesus is the only way to save our soul. There's no other way that we can make it. And unfortunately, so many in the world are trying so hard to stay alive as much as they can on this earth without realizing there's something much more tragic than dying of COVID. There's an eternal judgment. And there's only one remedy. That's the finished work of Christ. If you don't have that, you're without hope. It doesn't matter how long you want to prolong this life. What's waiting on the other side is more terrifying. But those of us that have Christ, we have hope. And those around us should know that. Let's be a daring church that dares to share Christ with the world. The gospel is the most important thing that people around you need to know. Way more important than your stance on vaccines, your politics, your personal preferences. The gospel is the most important thing the world needs to know. As A.W. Tozer once said, or J.I. Packer, I apologize, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve Him, boldness to share Him, and contentment in Him.